If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Jesus had entered Jerusalem on Sunday and was openly and enthusiastically proclaimed the Messiah as the city heard the roar of the crowd shouting, Hosanna, which means save us now. Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He'd cursed the fig tree, a symbol of a spiritually barren Israel, and it was found withered the next day. Then with righteous anger, he had cleansed the temple, fulfilling a messianic prophecy in Malachi 3 that God would send the Messiah to purify the temple of extortion and the commercialization of religion. In other words, by his actions, he presented himself as the Messiah and claimed authority over Israel's religious life. And then when surrounded by the chief priests, scribes, and the elders, in other words, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of religious Israel, who were all incensed that he was doing these things without his permission, their permission, Jesus refused then to tell them where his authority came from because of their blatant hypocritical unbelief. And now in our passage today, Jesus went even further using this occasion with most of the Sanhedrin right there in front of him to deliver what most consider to be a judgment uh, parable, the parable of the wicked vineyard keepers in the first 12 verses of Mark 12. The Jewish religious leaders recognized at once that this parable was pointedly condemning them. But also at the same time, Jesus was graciously revealing the hardened hearts of the leaders in order to reach the hearts of his people. And we see this in a what I think is a great outline of these 12 verses. It puts the emphasis where it should be. First, we see that this parable gives us a picture of the hope that God has for his people in verse 1. And then we see the kindness of God for his own in verses 2 through 8. And then we see the severity of God in verse 9. And fourthly, we see the ultimate triumph of God in history in verses 10 and 11. And then in the very last verse, we see the religious leaders' hatred of Jesus and their fear of the people really, really increasing. As we go through this passage, remember that this is a lens through which we can see and evaluate our own lives. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark 12, verses 1 through 12, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And he began to speak to them in parables. 
A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, first here, we get a picture of the hope that God has for his people in verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. And here what we really have is a picture of God's hope for his people like the hope of a man who planted a vineyard and waited expectantly for it to produce. Everyone who heard these words was well acquainted with this imagery. Why? Because the vineyard, or the vine, was a national symbol for Israel. The temple that Jesus was in, or right outside of, when he was giving this address had a 105-foot vine, carved grapevine, sculpted around the door that led from the porch to the holy place. And this vine itself was inlaid with gold, and the grapes were jewels. It's hard to imagine that, is it not? It's why one of the reasons why later when the disciples are leaving the temple, what did they say? Oh, Lord, look how great, beautiful this temple is. It was. It was incredible. Also, on their older coinage in the Maccabean period, before the, right before the time of Christ, the, the coinage had symbols of grapes or grape leaves on them. And Jesus uses phrases from a chapter in Isaiah that's known as the Song of the Vineyard, and he uses that often. 
In other words, every Jew understood that the Lord was the owner of this vineyard as they listened. And they recognized the incredible work in planting it, planting it, fencing it, equipping it, and protecting it from wild animals and intruders. It was a beautiful and hopefully, hopefully a very fruitful and productive place. The wine press, for example, was usually out of stone, um, hopefully in the ground, and it was at two levels. The top part was obviously to squish the, the grapes, press them, and they drained off into a lower portion that was actually the, the, the grape's juice. This is a picture that actually is the story and history of God's people, the picture that Jesus is drawing here. The tenants, the renters, the vineyard keepers are whom? They're the spiritual leaders of Israel. And with all these advantages that God had prepared and given them, the hope is for the people to be fruitful and a light to the Gentiles. And the divine plan so much rested on these vineyard keepers, the spiritual leaders. Now we can't hear this and just keep it in the category of ancient history and something that's kind of interesting to think about. It's spiritually relevant to every believer today. Why? Because we farm a far richer vineyard than even Israel had. We have the complete word of God. We know the risen Christ. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we have the testimony of Christians for the last 200, 2,000, 2,000 plus years. In our nation, we have so many resources available to us that one of our biggest issues for us is dependency upon all that instead of God himself. In Luke 12, verse 48, Luke writes what Jesus said, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Well, the Jewish hard-hearted religious leaders heard all this. And I think we need to picture this because who was right in front of Jesus? You know, early on when Jesus healed the man that came through the roof in the house, who was, had the special seats right around where Jesus was? It was always the religious leaders who demanded that everybody else defer to them so they could be the closest and be the ones that are hearing the best. Um, actually, it probably was because they wanted everybody to know that they were the religious leaders and so had those places. It's no different here. There was a crowd, obviously, there, a big crowd because of all the people coming into Jerusalem for Passover week. But he had just been addressing 
the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders, the, the Pharisees, and the scribes. Right before this, as we read and studied last week, in their question about, who do you think you are? Whose authority are you operating on? You, didn't ha- you don't have our authority. So Jesus is still speaking to the same group, mainly. Up close and personal. And we've got to remember that. And here they are. They heard all this. And they were getting a view of their roles, once again, that was diametrically opposed to how they saw their own position. And Jesus was revealing that to everyone. They suddenly were hearing what God expected of them in the form of this story, this parable. And they knew in their hearts that they did not really care about the spiritual health of God's beautiful vineyard. Second, here in this parable, we see the kindness of God for his own people. After we read these verses, I I think when you first read them, you just come away and go, wow. Well, after we calm down a little bit, we should recognize something that's very important here. Who was the one being patient and being kind over and over and over again? The owner who kept sending his messengers kept sending his prophets. We read this here. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. One older translator from... uh, couple of hundred years ago translated this as they broke his head and he sent another and him they killed so with many others some they beat and some they killed you notice the ex- escalation of the of the violence first there was beating and then there was more serious wounding and finally murder And historical records tell us that this kind of thing was actually going on in Israel right as Jesus was speaking. This this kind of using up the resources of other people and taking them for yourself was very common and it's recorded. So the, the people listening here, everyone knew what Jesus was talking about here. In other words, this was something personal that they knew about. If not for them, for somebody they knew outside of Jerusalem. Somebody with a vineyard who had had the owners or other people, the authorities come in and relieve them of their property and their produce. You read this kind of thing and you think, you know, nothing's really changed down through history. But even more important than this current situation was what Jesus was mainly referring to, which was the way Israel's leaders had treated the prophets down through their history up to Jesus' day. 
So this was much more than a parable. For example, Elijah was driven into the wilderness by the king in 1 Kings 19. Tradition holds that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death right next to the altar in 2 Chronicles 24. And John the Baptist was beheaded. Hebrews 11 verses 37 and 38, speaking of many of the prophets, wrote, said this. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And do you realize that most of that happened not because of their enemies, but because of the people themselves? And why was all this done? Because Israel's leaders wanted the vineyard's benefits for themselves. God's servants, his prophets, by announcing God's word, threatened the leadership's position and their financial benefits. Our Kent Hughes writes, this, is, this has a contemporary ring to it, doesn't it? We hear about it way too often. Men who have disqualified themselves from ministry are hanging on to their ministry as if the vineyard was their own. By their rejection of God's word, the spiritual advice of their peers, they are stoning the prophets who are sent to them. Spiritually, there's no difference between them and the violent leaders that we read about of old. Well, already closing their ranks as they listened, the leaders were realizing that Jesus was clearly revealing to everybody within hearing distance of him their own ultimate intention, which was what? To put Jesus to death. We know they'd been secretly conspiring way back, I think is one of the first two or three chapters in Mark that's recorded. That's what they were up to. These tenants in the parable saw that the owner's son coming, they saw him coming and thought that they could take control of the property if they killed him. They wanted the vineyard and all of its proceeds for themselves. They wanted to be God. And it didn't take much as Jesus revealed this to the people that they recognized that all the pretense and posturing that these leaders did as a matter of course, they realized this was what the difference was between those men and Jesus. And remember, every time Jesus taught, there's some statement like they were astonished. And in one place it even says, why? Because Jesus taught with authority from the word of God not applying it so he could benefit. 
And what a difference. What a difference. And in three days, three days, these very same men right here in front of Christ were going to have Jesus executed. In the face of humanity's refusal to receive God's love, God still persisted and persisted and persisted. And that's the point. Martin Luther needs to be quoted here. He speaks for us all. He wrote, If I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched things to pieces. I think it sounded a lot better in German. But you get the point. But God kept sending servant after servant after servant and finally sent his son. Spurgeon says if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you would wound him, he bleeds out righteous blood. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. And he ends with, Jesus is love made manifest, made known, shown, demonstrated. Do we understand that the incarnation of Christ and his death were acts of the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sending Jesus, another way to look at it, was actually God's ultimatum. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. God's ultimatum. And nothing remains when Christ is refused. God's love is still coming even to those who have cast his messenger or messengers aside. The fact is that the Son is coming to them right now, persistently. Jesus is persistently reaching out to a person until death, but we must urge others not to just toy with his love because there will be a day when it's too late. And what then comes is what's next here in our outline. Only the severity of God. We see this in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. What happened less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these words? a great national judgment came upon Israel as the Romans literally crushed Jerusalem and leveled the temple. In the vineyard, Jesus' church eventually came under mostly Gentile leadership. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, the first part of verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. Does that make a little more sense now? Knowing the fear of the Lord, 
we persuade others. The peril of resisting and refusing Christ <clears throat> has eternal implications. So the question is, are you persuaded? Now, there's something else interesting here. If you read Matthew's parallel account, it reads this way right here. Let me get the verse. When Jesus asked that question, and what will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. Trying to show how smart they were once again and how wise they were once again, the religious leaders answered Jesus' question themselves. Do you realize what they just did? They pronounced judgment upon themselves. That takes a minute to swallow. But that's exactly what happened. They pronounced judgment upon themselves. And fourthly here, we see the ultimate triumph of God in history in verses 10 and 11 of Mark 12. Jesus says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is simply a description of the ultimate triumph that would accompany, me, accompany his judgment. Now, some think that in Solomon's temple, when they were building it, that as they built uh, these kind of buildings, much different than we build things today, there were very important, humongous stones that were actually the, the support for the whole thing. And the ones in the corner... Um, were the most important. And they think something happened or somebody recorded something where one of those cornerstones was rejected and instead of just tossing it, it ended up being what we call now the keystone over one of the entrances. Why is Pennsylvania called the Keystone State? So it was 13 colonies, and as you... Let me do it from your perspective. As you go down the colonies, the one in the very middle was Pennsylvania. And when you build an arch and each stone is like this, it holds together. So which one has to be there right? The one in the very middle at the top. And some people think that's the illustration that is made. I don't know if that holds any value. The point is that what was thought to be rejected actually ended up being exalted. Jesus came knowing he'd be rejected, but also knowing that as he accomplished his mission, that the exaltation would come. So the rejected stone ended up being exalted as the chief cornerstone of the kingdom that God is building. That's important. In Matthew and Luke's parallel accounts, Jesus is recorded as flat out adding this. 
And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And these are prophecies from Daniel mainly in chapter 2 and Amos chapter 9. So Jesus puts all this together as he issues, um, I don't know what exactly you'd call this. It's almost like an ultimatum to these men. They were mainly responsible here for the state of their charges. So those who reject Christ will be smashed by the divine stone spoken of by the prophet Daniel, the stone cut without hands, which is coming with the momentum of holy wrath. And those people who are broken to pieces by the stone we read there in those, in those prophecies will become like chaff on a summer threshing floor. Remember the wheat falls and is used. When they winnow it and throw it up, the chaff is lighter and it's just blown away. And there's nothing left. There's some pretty stark pictures here of the seriousness of judgment coming. So the Sanhedrin, what did they just heard? They just heard this outline of their past history brought up in the, in the form of a parable. Right up to the present week. When they will do to the Son of God exactly what happened to the vineyard owner's son. You know, this is not very subtle. The hope of God for his people the kindness and patience of God for his people, the severity of God towards the people's unrepentant spiritual leaders mainly, but also those who reject God's Son, and then the ultimate triumph of God in sending him to finish his redeeming work this very week. For the hope before Jesus is what kept him going to accomplish his mission for us. So then we read this last very, very sad and important verse in verse 12. The result. Instead of their hearts being changed and open and affected by this laid out history lesson that was now coming to fruition before their own eyes, of which they were the main players. They became even more full of hate, even more fearful of the people who had clamored, Save us now, O son of David. And we see that happen many times as well, do we not? They had just rejected the very one they were supposed to represent before the people. In the temple, these men had been standing right before the chief cornerstone himself. Spiritually, they had just thrown themselves off 
the eastern wall of the Temple Mount, which is probably where they were standing here, under the cover of the porch, running around the grounds. And on the eastern side, that means what? That spiritually they had just thrown themselves into the Kidron Valley, 450 feet, almost straight down. In other words, they had stepped into the abyss. And today the situation is just as critical. Let those who know the Lord, who follow Him, who serve Him, who love Him, who belong to Him, let us by prayer, example, and proclamation encourage others to run to the cross of Christ, the Redeemer, our only hope and salvation. And here we have a hands-on picture, demonstration, physical thing that we can experience that pictures the exact same story before us now. This supper, known as the Lord's Supper, is not appointed for the physical body. Because the Lord had ended their meal for the physical body before he began this new supper. And I don't know whether everyone realizes this, but between, toward the end of the meal and this supper, Judas had left to betray Christ. He was not a part of this supper. Just thought it fit the context a little more seriously today. We need to remember these things. This supper is appointed for our soul. Jesus said things like, I am the bread of life, which also help us understand what's going on here. Scripture teaches that we need the spiritual nourishment when we focus on and believe Christ of who he is and what he's done because we forget so easily. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the Apostle Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation The words communion in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation or communion in the body of Christ? This is a reality that is hard to describe. It is. And there's never found in the historical creeds and confessions in some exhaustive explanation of everything that's possible to be taught and for us to learn as we come to the Lord's table. And I'm glad. I think they did that on purpose. They did as well as they could, but they left much of it to the work of his indwelling spirit to apply to our hearts what we need to learn as we think about the things that really did happen. And as we do what Christ instructed us to do in regularly taking the bread and the cup and his supper, which we do here once a month, usually on this second Sunday of each month, our souls are nourished because we are believing in Christ's person and his saving work for us.